This morning we are continuing uh, our church improvement series and where we are going through uh, different prayers uh, in the scriptures. And uh, each year when we do our church improvement series, we focus in on one or more of our church, uh, our, our 10 core values. And this year uh, we are focusing on our third core value for all four of the sermons. And that I want to read to you is that, that we believe that without Christ we can do nothing Therefore, a growing devotion to both corporate and personal prayer is vital. And as I said last week, uh, I don't want to lay out a guilt trip uh, for us, uh, you know, because we don't pray enough as, or as faithfully as we ought to. Instead, what I want to do in these sermons is to encourage us in our life of corporate and individual prayer. Instead of adding an additional burden to our shoulders, uh, a burden of prayer, uh, something more that we need to do, uh, I want to press us closer toward our Savior, Remember, yes, he is the one who brings life. He's the one uh, who restores. He's the one who takes the weight of the burden off of our shoulders as he places it upon himself. Last week, we looked at Ephesians uh, 3.14, and uh, Sean read that at the beginning. And um, before I pray, I need to make a correction. Uh, something that I said was wrong. Verse 14 uh, says, For this reason I bow the knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What I meant to say last week uh, was that, that the Greek word for family, patria, is derived for, uh, from, the Greek, uh, for, uh, from the Greek for uh, father, which is a patera. They're different words. Uh, and they sound similar enough that the original readers likely would have made the connection of God's authority over every family. But what I said was uh, that uh, they were the same word. One was masculine, one was feminine. I, and you may be thinking, what's the big deal? Well, I, I got it wrong, and I, I do want to apologize for any confusion, and I want to thank the individuals, one of whom is here this morning, for uh, pointing it out to me after service. So um, it's good to be, it's good to be, uh, I think it's, it's good to be clear. And so because I wasn't last week, I just wanted to, to start with that. Let me pray now for our time. Heavenly Father, as we look at Psalm 51, I pray that uh, you would indeed encourage us. Father, we are dealing with a, a time in David's life uh, which was probably his darkest hour. And uh, we're looking intimately at that, this psalm and at that moment and seeing his response. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would bring us hope Father, we are always tempted to despair as we look at our own sin. We're, always, we're often tempted to judging others when we look at their sin. I pray, Father, that instead of either of these things, as we look at this text, you would reveal us and our sin to us, that we might rejoice in the forgiveness that we have seen, that we have received in Christ Jesus. And Father, I, I pray that you would allow any unconfessed sin, Father, in us to be confessed before you. And Father, I, I ask that you would move in us to not worldly repentance or a worldly grief that leads to death, but to godly grief that leads to repentance and newness of life. We acknowledge that even as believers, we are indeed sinners. And so, Father, this is a word that we need. Just as David was a man after your own heart, 
He needed your forgiveness. He needed your mercy. We too, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need the mercy of Christ at work in us. And so, Father, I pray that you would use your word to do its work in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I do want to encourage you to open up uh, your Bibles to Psalm 51 as we go through the psalm. And um, Psalm 51, uh, you know, I'm calling it a prayer. And indeed, I think it really is a prayer of, um, of David's. Uh, but it is classified uh, as a penitential psalm or, or a psalm of repenting. David is repenting of his sin. And we find the context of what David is repenting of in the header of the psalm, which uh, Emily did uh, read for us. But that header at the beginning of Psalm 51 says to the choir master. And from that, we, we understand that this is a psalm that was read among the people or that was sung among the people. And so it's, it was written by David, a psalm of David. But then the, the particular is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And what that's referring to is the account that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, verse 1 through 12, 23. And I'm not going to read that to you now. It's, it's a longer uh, section, but that's where we'll find the, that, uh, that account. What comes out of, like I said, it was one of David's darkest moments. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Instead of going out to war uh, with his people, he stayed at home. He looked out and he saw Bathsheba and he called for her to come to him. By all accounts, when the king calls a woman to come to him, she doesn't have a choice. Well, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and she became pregnant. So then he arranged to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. David, after the murder, she's a widow and he takes her in to be his wife. And it seems that everything has been covered over. Everything is fine. Everything's in the past now. But then God sent prophet Nathan to confront David. And we read in uh, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David's response to Nathan's confrontation. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That was his response. I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't make excuses. He didn't, he didn't try and blame someone else. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And I think what we have here then in Psalm 51 is a more intimate look at David's prayer for God's mercy. He saw his sin and so he turned to God. What we see in Psalm 51 is that God does show mercy. God shows mercy to those who come to him in humble repentance. And that really is the life of a Christian, or it ought to be the life of us as Christians, a life of repentance. Right? Every time we sin, of continually turning away from our sin and humbly turning back to God in repentance. And what we, I think, can take as we begin this journey with David is that if David... Right, the king, right, the, the man after God's own heart. If he needed to ask God for mercy, if he needed to repent before God, then we probably too need to look at our own lives 
Consider what we need to repent from. And if God forgave David of his adultery and murder, then perhaps he can forgive us too if we will humbly come to him. And so as we look at the psalm, we find that our greatest need is met through the mercy of God. We know that ultimately that is through Jesus Christ. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins and made right with God. So this morning, as we look at the text, there's, uh, we're going to break it up into three sections, but overall, I believe that it shows that God shows mercy to those who come to him in humble repentance. And in this first section, we see that in response, we, we should turn to God to confess our sin. We turn to God to confess our sin. So when David was confronted with his sin, uh, we get from the wording in here that he felt dirty. He felt unclean. He felt like he needed to be washed. And so what does he do? He, he pleads for mercy. And I want to read again uh, verse 1. He says, Have mercy, mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's words express not a sense of entitlement, but, but really desperation. He, he is begging God for mercy. He's begging God for mercy because he knows he doesn't have a leg to stand on. He doesn't have a place where he can demand or expect that God will forgive him. He pleads with God for mercy. It's part of it is that David knew right, that his predecessor, Saul, had been removed from the kingship and the spirit had left him for much less than this sin. And David also knew that God's law said that the penalty for adultery was death. The penalty for murder was death. David deserved to die. So he, he pleads with God for mercy. He sees his sin for what it is and he goes to the one who would forgive. What compounded uh, the offense uh, was that as the king, David was tasked to protect the people and administer justice. And so instead of protecting people, he did quite the opposite. Right? He killed one of his own people. He, uh, he raped one of his own. But when David goes to God for mercy, what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't say, come on, God, if, if, if you're not merciful with me, the, the whole country's going to fall apart. No, he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. David cast himself on God's mercy and his steadfast love, his covenantal love. The word there is chesed, one that familiar with. And God's covenantal love is the very basis of God's mercy toward his people. It's always according to his covenantal love, always according to his steadfast love. Instead of making excuses or trying to hide, David confesses his sin before God. He says, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And then he says something that's very shocking. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Wait, what? D David killed a man. He 
killed a man after he had raped the man's wife. These probably are the most shocking words of this psalm. But he says, against you, against God only? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the child who would eventually die because of David's sin? Well, I think that we tend to think of our own sin uh, in connection with the consequences of our sins. So we, we tend to think of the worst sins as being the ones that bring the greatest consequences or the worst consequences either to us or, or to someone else. Right? The greater the harm, the worse the sin. That's how we tend to classify it in our minds. And there is a little bit of validity to that, isn't there? Because uh, right, there's a difference uh, between uh, intentionally doing something uh, to take someone's life, uh, as David did, or accidentally uh, uh, in anger, uh, punching your brother in the arm. Right? There, there's a difference between those two. But here he says, apart from the horizontal impacts of sin, the greatest offense of any sin is the offense against God. And the reason for that is that every sin is rebellion against God. It's, it's not oriented toward God. It's oriented toward ourselves. That's why we sin. We believe that whatever we're pursuing in sin will bring us greater joy than pursuing the Lord. That's what David did. That's what we do. And so we rebel against God against his ways, against his character, against his work even in us. So he is the one who's most offended by our sin. I think David, in saying these words, he's not denying uh, the harm that he brought against others. But I think instead, what David is doing is he's showing, at least especially in this prayer, that he understands the greatest part of his offense is toward God. David owns his sin completely. And then he goes on to, to say that he, he not only owns his sin, but he owns that, uh, that God would be justified if, if he didn't give him mercy. Right? He, uh, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, what David is saying, I'm asking God, I'm asking you for your mercy and if you don't give it, you're just. You're still good. You're still right. You're still righteous. I don't deserve it. David owns his sin completely. He owns also that it's actually part of who he is. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, before we think that David is saying something bad about his mother, he's not. Uh, he's not saying anything about conception at all, that that in itself is sinful. But what I think he's pointing to is that from conception, as we know, right, that he's sinful. We, we're all sinful. We're born sinful. A lot of times we, when we sin, we're like, yeah, I did this one thing, but it's, really, it's not me. That's not really who I am. We want to identify ourselves with the best part of ourselves, not with the sinful part of ourselves. But David here is saying, this is indeed part of who I am. This is where I came from. He's not trying to blame his sinfulness upon uh, his sinful nature. Instead, he's owning that it's all a part of who he is. What do you do with your own sin? Right? David owned his sin. He, he called it for what it is, but 
We don't always do that, do we? We often don't do that. And so what do you do with your sin? Do you give it a new name? Right? So uh, instead of a sin, instead of a transgression, maybe you call it a shortcoming. Maybe you call it a, fall, a, a, a flaw or a mistake. Maybe you call it a lie, a white lie. Or do you make excuses for your sin, right? It, it wasn't my fault, right? It, if you only knew what I had to deal with, right? I, I would have been here on time except it was the train, right? And sometimes the train does make us late here as we're coming through town with five, through five points. But sometimes, right, the, the temptation as I am running late to an appointment is, oh, please let me hit a train. Please let me hit a train. Why? So I'll have an excuse to tell the other person, I'm not owning my sin when I do that. Sometimes we give a sin a new name. Instead of adultery, we call it an affair. All of these things we do to kind of whitewash the reality of it. We make excuses for our sin. But even in doing that, it's another form of hiding from God. It's another form of hiding from others. But when we, like David, own our sin, we actually honor God when we own our sin, when we confess our sin, right? right? We should turn to God to confess our sin, the one who knows our sin, not looking to blame others as Adam did, as Eve did in the garden, not looking to ourselves and our excuses, but instead, when we turn to God and confess our sin, what we're doing is we're, we're acknowledging that God knows. And when we come to him to plead for mercy, we're acknowledging that he is the one who indeed bestows mercy. When we acknowledge our sin before him, we are saying that you are the one who shows what is right and what is wrong, not our own uh, definition of right and wrong. When we come to him with honest confession, when we plead with him for mercy, we show that we trust the gospel Right? Because otherwise we're saying, well, when we minimize our sin, we're saying, you know, we, didn't, we don't really need the gospel. We don't really need Christ's work in our life. We don't really need God's forgiveness and mercy. Or we somehow believe or, or act as if that there is another place where we can find forgiveness apart from God's covenantal love. And so because we know that God shows mercy to those who come to him in humble repentance, we see David doing what we should do, and that is to turn to him to confess our sins. Which then leads uh, to uh, the next part, which is we, we look to God for cleansing and restoration. We look to God for cleansing and re restoration. As I said, David felt dirty. And ten, uh, sin tends to make us feel dirty, doesn't it? Right? We know we've done something wrong. We feel bad about it. We feel icky. Christian, non-Christian, feel the same. There's that same uh, sense of dirtiness comes uh, to people. And when we feel, when we feel that way, we, we can mistakenly find ourselves looking elsewhere for forgiveness or absolution or, or at least to not feel so dirty. Maybe we can think we can uh, wait out God somehow, right? We can, if, I, if I just stop this sin... And then uh, I'll wait a while, right? Maybe I'll have a good spell where I won't struggle with it anymore and then I'll return to God. And, and maybe if I've done enough good works between that last time I, I uh, fell to that sin 
And when I go to God, maybe he'll have forgotten it. Sometimes we look to others to, to, and ask their opinion of our lives. Oh, oh you, they, we hope that they'll tell us that we're doing okay, that we're doing a good job. Because we know in ourselves, we feel in the dirtiness of, of our own sin that, well, we know that we're not doing as well as we appear to be. But like David, or we should go to the Lord for cleansing. Listen to the words in verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. If we walk through what David is asking, hyssop, that first in verse 7, it says, uh, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a plant that was used uh, in a number of uh, ceremonial cleansings. One was uh, for lepers. They were sprinkled with blood to be cleansed. Another uh, was, and I think the most significant, was that it was also used as part of the Passover. In Exodus 12, 22, right, the Lord told the people to take a bunch of hyssop, and, to, it's, and it's, by the way, it's a leaf. It's a group of leaves, probably, is our understanding, and dip it in blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. And so what happened at the Passover it was a lamb was slain and the blood was, was painted on the doorway with the hyssop. And it was that blood that caused the angel of the Lord to pass over and not bring judgment upon God's people. And so David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Not only does David believe that I shall be cleaner, but I shall be white as snow. Looking out today, right, um, we see uh, the landscape is covered in snow. And some snow is cleaner than other snow, right? And if you're a kid, don't eat the snow because it's dirty, right? Um, that's not really what David is pointing to here. David is pointing to the vast difference between his own filth and the purity, the, the whiteness of freshly fallen snow. David then goes out, out and, and uh, or goes on to say, let me uh, hear joy and gladness. The, the bones that you have broken rejoice. Did God break David's bones? Well, metaphorically, he did. Because through Nathan, he confronted him of his sin. And so David was broken before the Lord. But that brokenness did what? It led him to repentance. That godly grief led him to turn to the Lord. So he said that even his brokenness, even in his broken bones, he would rejoice. That is the hope, I think. Every time uh, we think about sins being forgiven is that we would turn to the joy, uh, turn to the Lord and rejoice in him. That, that third then, in verse 9, where he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. That phrase, hide your face. See, elsewhere in the scriptures, when God would hide his face from someone, he would turn his back on them. And so what David is saying now is, don't turn your back on me. Please turn your back on my sins. Don't look on my sins. And isn't that exactly what we find as redeemed people through the cross? 
that the Father no longer looks upon our sins, but he looks upon Christ instead. Christ who has paid for our sins that we might be cleansed, that we might be white as snow, just as we sang earlier. In that, we should rejoice. You see, he doesn't just ask to be cleansed. He goes on then to ask to be restored. Uh, And this, I think, is beautiful here in verse 10. And this is, I I don't know if if you grew up listening to Keith Green, you've probably heard this song a zillion times. Verse 10, so much so that you almost can't even hear the verses themselves, or at least I, I couldn't, I struggled to. Verse 10, he, David asked for more than just cleansing. He asked to be restored. In verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David is asking for a miracle here. At right, the beginning, he knew that he should be dead But instead, he asks that God would cleanse him, but not just cleanse him, but create in him a clean heart, a new heart. That word create, it is is a word that is connected to the same word of creation. There's imagery to actual God creating or recreating. He's saying, make my heart completely new. Create in me a clean heart and renew my spirit within me. It is not enough for David to be cleansed on the outside. He wants to be renewed on the inside. That uh, next uh, part, he says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. We think of that, that sounds strange to us, especially as New Testament Christians. But remember that uh, that God had taken his spirit away from Saul, his predecessor. This was a a real danger. Uh, David uh, saw when God had turned away from Saul, he had turned his face away from Saul. He had left his presence and he'd taken his spirit from him. David didn't want that. What's interesting is I I don't think David is clinging for the crown. He's not saying, please just let me continue being king. Let me keep my power. I think what David wants is continue his relationship with the Lord. And that's why he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you've been a Christian a long time, if you've been a Christian a long time, you may remember a time when you first came to Christ and it was exciting, right? Um, Especially if you weren't a Christian, if you remember not being a Christian, like, you know, some of our kids grew up in here and they don't really remember not being a Christian. But if you were like a horrible sinner like I was, I remember not being a Christian. And I remember the things that I did. And then I remember the moment that I first felt the forgiveness of Christ. And I remember tearfully telling my roommate, if I ever lose this, I pray that God would take my life. And I I really meant it. I didn't want to lose the joy of the salvation that Christ had purchased for me. And yet what happens? Years of difficulty, years of of living faithfully, of of trying and sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing in the Christian life. Sometimes we get worn down. 
say we eventually do get worn down. And in part, I would say that is the goal of, uh, of the devil is to wear us down. It's also the, our proclivity of our, our sinful nature. This side of heaven, we will continue to be worn down. And as we get better at certain things, uh, we start to do them in our own strength. We stop going to the Lord for help and desperation. We start looking into ourselves. And what happens? We be, we're no longer uh, as excited about our salvation. We no longer have that same willing spirit. And like David, who, when he was out in the wilderness, clung to God so tightly because he didn't have a home. He had no refuge apart from God. But as he found himself in a home, king, peace, you know, he was a king and there was peace around and, and what did he do? He lost sight of the salvation of the Lord. He lost sight of who God is. And so here he says, restore to me that which is most precious, that which is most valuable, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and give me a willing spirit. Not, not just a spirit who's willing to do your work, but a spirit who uh, is willing to look to you in all things. It's, it's really God's antidote for temptation. Right? If I'm willingly seeking after the Lord over and over, I'm less likely to fall prey to my own sinful uh, proclivities. And so like David, we too we should confess our sins. We, we should go to him. And we think, well, yeah, but I confess my sin. Je- didn't Jesus pay for every sin from the, the start to the end? He did. But when we confess our sin, what are we doing? We're agreeing with the Lord. I confess that he is right. 1 John uh, chapter 1 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What are we doing? Those things are not dependent one upon the other, but they do go together. And so as believers, as we confess our sins before the Lord, we're acknowledging, I have sinned before you. I need your help. I need your mercy. And even though he has promised to give us forgiveness in Jesus Christ, what does it do? It renews our relationship with him. It renews our worship with him. It renews the joy of our salvation. And that's really what leads then into these last verses. Right, so God shows his mercy to those who come to him in humble repentance. So we turn to him, we turn to God to confess our sin. We look to God for cleansing and restoration. And third, we worship God with renewed humility and faith. That's, that's what these last verses point to, is uh, an attitude of renewed worship. Verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." we see in these verses is that true worship is humble worship. True worship is humble worship, humble before the Lord. What David is saying, I think, especially in in the beginning, uh, I'm sorry, in verses 13 and 14, he says, well, then uh, 
Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. What he's saying is, I'm willing to humbly confess, or I'm sorry, I'm humbly willing to testify to your work in me. I'll, I'll teach of others of your ways and I'll be willing to use myself as the bad example. And when he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. No longer would David be looking to his own righteousness, but the righteousness of God, the only one who could deliver him from blood guiltiness. And then verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The commentators, what they've said about this verse is, it wasn't like, yeah, go ahead, God, open my mouth. Let's see what comes out. No, his conscience had, had shut his mouth. It had closed him down so that he could no longer praise as he had once before. But that was the desire of David's heart, that he would be able to praise the Lord, return to praising the Lord. And then in 16 and 17, David isn't saying that God doesn't delight in sacrifice, but he doesn't delight in insincere sacrifice. And we know that God still takes pleasure in sacrifice because in, in verses 18 and 19, he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I think what, what we see here is David asking that the Lord would restore the protection of the kingdom. The place where he should have been protecting his people and he didn't. And so he asked that the Lord would do good to the people of God, to the city of God, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. David knows, and we need to know too, that what is pleasing to the Lord is not our performance. It's not our actions. It's not, it's not even really our obedience. I have to put an asterisk by that, by the way. Uh, but when I say that, what I, he says, a broken and contrite spirit. So we can do all of the right things. We can obey by our external and have a wicked heart. But God is not pleased with those acts of obedience. And so, I think in this psalm, we see that David is asking for the very thing that he needed, which was to be renewed internally so that his worship could be renewed. And it's the very thing that we need as well. I think when we're confronted by our sin, we want to brush it away. We don't like it. We don't want to admit our weakness. But in admitting our weakness, in, in admitting, having a contrite heart, a, a broken and contrite heart before the Lord, before others, a broken spirit, realizing that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, these are values of, of God knowing who we are and humbly worshiping him from where we are, not pretending to be someone else. And so when we're confronted by our sin, I think it's an opportunity for us to remember and to rehearse and to rejoice in the gospel. Not to minimize our sin, but when we are confronted by our sin, to respond in godly grief. Not to respond in despair, but to respond in worship. In confession, it's not, a, it's not some therapeutic exercise that we go through. It's being right before 
our great and glorious God. So as we look at prayer as a part of our church, both corporate and individual, I wanted to show us in, in the Ephesians passage, right, that God, I'm sorry, that Jesus Christ is so glorious that we can't help but uh, cry out to him. And as we look at Psalm 51, to remember that, that we should not allow sin to keep us from the Lord, but instead allow our sin, as we're confronted with it, as we're convicted by it, to press us into our Savior, into the one who is merciful, the one who gives complete and utter justice, but not to us, but through his son, Jesus Christ, who pays the penalty for us as believers. God shows mercy to those who come to him in humble repentance because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so we can turn to God and confess our sin. We can look to him for cleansing and restoration that's complete and full. And we can worship God with renewed humility and faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are a God who is merciful that you're gracious, that you're slow to anger, you're bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you have said that you keep steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And Father, we thank you that you have made us your people, the recipients of that grace because of the work that your son Jesus Christ has done. I pray, Father, that you would give us a sense of the beauty of Jesus Christ that we would run to him, knowing that he came that our sins might be forgiven. His great delight is us coming to him and confessing our sins. And so, Father, help us to not despise our brokenness, not despise our need for a savior, but just as the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, was willing to plead for you for mercy, I pray, too, that you would Cause us to plead with you for mercy, for forgiveness of sins, and that in response that you would lift up our eyes and show us a loving Savior who is there to embrace us and to welcome us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May he be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.